0: Okay, I need my prop. Where's my prop? I can't believe it. It's a good thing, though. Uh, I held up to to begin the sermon this morning. I'm preaching the same sermon I preached this morning, and I held up the book, Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper, and I said, have you read this book? And some people in the congregation hadn't read it, so they took all of them. So um, there's not one left. That's a good thing. Uh, I've got more at home. Uh, but how many of you read this book by John Piper, Don't Waste Your Life? If you've read it, uh, you've been challenged down to your socks, and if you haven't read it, I dare you to read it. Uh, it's a passionate challenge to be a real Christian, to love Jesus Christ, to walk with Jesus Christ, to obey Jesus Christ, even when it costs everything. I love the book. I read it several years ago, and I bet I've given, I don't know, hundreds of copies away. Piper's right when he says, the vast majority of mankind, including much of professed Christianity, is living their one very short, very precious life in such a way that they are wasting it. That's a strong indictment. John Piper says in his book, he goes on to say, you ask your uh, average person on the street what a life well spent looks like. And this is what you will hear. Uh, Get a good education, uh, have a good job, make lots of money, have a nice home, uh, have a good husband, a good wife, uh, have a couple of good kids, have some good friends, uh, good health, fun vacations, and a well-funded retirement. This is what you'll hear. There's one thing missing. Anybody know what's missing in that that answer? God. God's missing. And Piper, his point is, if you're living your life without reference to Jesus Christ, you're wasting it. Because that's not what He put you here for. That's not what God made you for. How many times have I said it in this pulpit? We were made... By Jesus Christ. And what else? For Jesus Christ. And this is Piper's point in his book. In fact, Piper says, if you get an answer like this from someone, that's not a life well spent. That's a tragedy. That is a tragic, misspent life. Pursuing... Let me just read Piper. You're going to love this. Piper says, God created us to live with a single passion to joyfully display His supreme excellence in all spheres of life. That's what we've been talking about, living for the glory of God. Piper continues, The wasted life is a life without this passion. Most people slip by in life without this passion for God. I'm still quoting spending their lives on trivial diversions, living for comfort and ease and pleasure. And I want you to hear this last sentence, and I don't want you to ever forget it. I want it to be echoing in your ears every day, squandering their days on bubbles that burst. Let me ask you, right at the outset here, are you passionately living for your Creator, or are you chasing bubbles that burst? John Piper is right. He says, if you're chasing bubbles that burst, you are wasting your life. We were made by Jesus Christ for the glory of Jesus Christ. Last week I told you, last couple of weeks, I told you that John 11 is like a, a worldview tutorial. I lost my Bible. This is awful. I must retrieve it. Uh, John 11 is uh, a worldview tutorial. It's as if Jesus is saying here, This is how my people are supposed to process life. This is how my people are supposed to think. This is how my people are supposed to see and interpret events. Always looking for me and my glory. The last two weeks we've been asking this question, what on earth am I here for? And we borrowed uh, this great quote from Rick Warren's famous book, The Purpose Driven Life. I've shared with you, that's not my favorite book in the world, but this could be my most favorite opening sentence of any book. What does John Piper say in his opening sentence? You guys are good. (laughs) You've been listening or you've read the book, or both. What, what What on earth am I here for? It's not about you. Have you figured that out? As everybody in this room figured it out That the universe doesn't revolve around you it revolves around someone infinitely more interesting infinitely more worthy um, it's not about you and Rick Warren goes on to say this you must begin with God he's your creator you exist only because God wills that you exist you were made by God and for God and until you understand that your life will never make sense Life is about letting God use you for His purposes, not vice versa. And how often do you hear it and see it even in the church? People want to use God. He's their big rabbit's foot. I want to use God to give me what I think I need and what I think I want. But Rick Warren is exactly right when he says, life is about letting God use us for His purposes it's not about you it is about him it's always been about him it will always be about him Romans eleven 36 I'm going to share it with you again for the third straight time you should memorize this verse if you don't know it this is the whole Bible in one verse for from him through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever Okay, who's the hymn we're talking about? Jesus Christ. For from Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ, are all things. To Him be the glory forever. This is what we've been talking about for the last two weeks. I'm going to give you the same litany. And yes, I'm recovering ground. But John chapter 11 is so urgently important that we understand what uh, the Lord Jesus is teaching us here that I'm going to just recover some ground and then I'm going to get into the text. But I'm going to give you this litany I gave you last week, the last two weeks. Your life, your body, your marriage, your kids, your career, your money, your hobbies, your plans, your dreams, your trials, your pain, your sicknesses, and even your death are for the glory of God. From Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. So, what does it mean to live for the glory of god and our shorthand here is what does anybody remember what's a shorthand in this church for living for the glory of god oh somebody tell me (laughs) to make jesus famous is is the lord jesus christ a god of renown and a god of notoriety and a god of repute because he's your god Uh, this is the job description of a christian to live for the glory of jesus christ to make Him famous in the world. And that's John Piper's point in the book. If you're not doing this, you're wasting your life. I know that's hard, but it's truth. It's truth. So, are you wasting your life? Are you living it passionately in such a way that men and women around you can see that you belong to Him? Can see that you belong to Jesus Christ and that He's honored in your life? couple weeks ago we saw that Martha let me just back up and just pick up a few things just to bring you up to speed some of you weren't here for the first two weeks and let me just bring you up to speed we know that Martha and Mary sent for Jesus because Lazarus was sick and near death we got to go back and and uh, and uh, revisit here verse 4 but Jesus said this sickness is not unto death but it's for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified by it verse 5 now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he tarried for two days. And this is important that we get this. We talked about that the NIV English translation is wrong. It inserts a word that's not in the Greek. It inserts the word yet. There's an infinite difference between God loved, uh, God loved them so or God loved them yet. There's a world of difference there. Jesus loved them so he allows them to pass through... A very difficult and sorrowful trial. Now, this runs contrary to what your average uh, man or woman would say when they when when you ask your average man or woman to to define divine love. Normally, you'll hear things like this: Well, to provide for human comfort and human ease, human success, human longevity. You hear all these things. Uh, That when you ask, what is is God here for? What is the definition of of divine love? And you hear all of these things. That God's really just there for us to make our lives temporally happy. If we understand John 11, we see that, that it's not all about Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. It's about Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ wants to do in their life. And I want to submit to you, if you're a Christian tonight, it's the same thing with you. It's not about you. If you're not a Christian, you don't understand John 11. John 11 will be completely lost on you. You will not understand John 11. But if you're a Christian, Jesus is saying, this is how I want you to process life. This is how I want you to live. Jesus loved them so, He allows them to pass through this very sorrowful and difficult trial. So what is the real definition of divine love? I know I'm I'm recovering some ground, but what is the definition of divine love? The true biblical definition of divine love. It's whatever it takes for God to give Himself to you. Whatever it takes. Great blessing or great trial. It matters not. We see it in the book of Job. God never explains Himself to Job. Right? He never explains Himself to Job. He just shows Himself to Job. And friends, we need to get, we need to, get to where we think like John 11. When the trial comes, we need to expect to see God. We need to expect to see His glory. And what have we been saying for the last couple of weeks? In His glory is our joy. Divine love gives us that for which we were originally wired for. And that's Him. That's to be in a passionate relationship with the living God. And again, the compelling theology lesson is this. And I'm going to say this and then we'll get into the verses the passion with which God pursues His own glory. And if you read your Bible, if you have any biblical understanding at all, you know that God is always pursuing His glory. God is pursuing His glory. God is pursuing His glory. With the same passion that God pursues His glory, He pursues His people's joy. And you're going to see this tonight in John 11. We've been talking about it for two weeks, but as we finish the chapter, you're going to see that all of this glory that Jesus was talking about it's, it's for the joy of His people. Yes, He's going to put Himself on display and He's going to be glorified. But we're going to see inexpressible joy in the life of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So, Jesus finally has arrived. He tarried for two days. Lazarus has died. He's been in the tomb for four days. We talked about the significance of that. Jesus has talked to uh, Martha and Mary. And... Uh, We saw last week that Jesus wept at the tomb. Yes, of course He knows He's going to unleash divine power and call this dead and decomposing corpse out of the tomb. But this is the complexity of the God-man. He's 100% God, 100% man. He weeps for His lost friend, just like you and I weep when we're standing by that mound of dirt in the cemetery. And Jesus weeps, right? And now He's going to unleash divine power. And He's going to do an unbelievable, unspeakable miracle. Look at verse 37. But some of them were saying, Could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? And how many times do you hear this question? It's like people want to say, Well, wait a minute. You're telling me God is omnipotent and you're telling me that God is love So where's God in this circumstance? You'll hear many people say, well, if He's omnipotent, He must not be a God of love. Or if He's a God of love, He must not be omnipotent or He wouldn't allow this to happen. How many times do you hear this? I hear it all the time as a pastor. This is one of the the premier objections to Christianity. The premier objection to the biblical God. Well, How do you reconcile His power and His love and His seeming absence? Uh, when Lazarus was sick. This is apparently what these guys are asking. This is the question that they're asking. And how often do you hear it? Why does God allow this? And why doesn't God fix that? And why doesn't God stop this? Friends, I want to say to you, um, you and I need to be humble. (laughs) Who do you think you are to call God to account? And I hear it all the time and I tremble for people when I hear them calling God to account. Who do you think you are calling God to account? To reconcile who He is with what He's done. Let me ask you. Paul says it. Who are you, O man, who answers back to the living God? Brothers and sisters, we need to be humble. And we need to teach those around us to be humble we need to be pointing to this as we've been seeing tonight this almighty awesome God a God of consuming fire a holy God a righteous God and we need to be humble before him I love what Elihu told Job in Job thirty-three thirteen. this is beautiful why do you complain against God he does not give an account of himself and Friends, you might as well mark this down. It's true. God's never going to explain Himself to you. Ever. God's not in the business of explaining Himself to His creatures. This is God's prerogative. He reveals, he reveals truth, but He never explains Himself. God doesn't explain Himself to His creatures. We need to, we need to understand that. I love what Paul says. God's ways are unsearchable and they are what? Anyone know? Unfathomable. He's God, and here's a flash for you. If you didn't know it when you walked in, you're not. He's God, and you're not. And I just want to say this in a very loving way. Do not call God to account. Friends, we need to have some humility. We need to have some humility before our Creator. And I love what David says in Psalm 37.5. When the trial comes and we don't understand what God's doing, and I'm going to say to you many times, you will not know what God is doing. You will be, you'll be clueless about what God is doing in your life. And David says, here's what you do, Christian. Commit your way to the Lord and what? Trust Him. Can you do that? That's really the challenge tonight. Next time the trial comes, will you commit your way to the Lord and will you trust Him? Verse 38, we see that Jesus is deeply moved. He's no stoic And uh, as I said, uh, of course He knows He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And I'm going to step back one more time and I'm going to say this for the last time, I think. Verse 5 and verse 6. Well, verse 4. The sickness is for the glory of the Son of God. Verse 5. Jesus loved them. So He tarried and Lazarus died and Martha and Mary went through a heart-wrenching trial. So he tarried two more days. And Lazarus died. You've got to understand this. And you're going to see the glory of God revealed in the next few verses. And you're going to see the joy of His people. We've been talking about this for the last three weeks. In verse 15, I have to make a point of this. I mentioned it last week and I have to mention it one more time. I'm going to make much of it again. Verse 15, what does Jesus say to the disciples? He says, I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there to heal Lazarus. Why? Why was Jesus glad that they weren't there? Anybody? What does it say in the text? So that you may believe. So here's the application for you if you're a Christian tonight. When the trial comes, you're supposed to hold fast. You're supposed to stand on the rock. You're supposed to believe that Christ is on His way. If He's tarried, He's tarried. Why? Why has He tarried in your trial? Somebody tell me from the text. Because he loves you, and he's going to do something infinitely more than what you think he ought to do. He's going to do something infinitely more than Martha or Mary could have imagined. He's going to raise their dead brother out of the tomb. And what I want to say to you, he'll do infinitely more in your life if you will commit your way to him and you will trust him. This is John 11. This is John 11. Trust Christ in your trial. You have to remember, you are not the center of the universe. He is. It's not about you. It is about Him. Trust Him to show up. And trust Him to bring awesome, awesome joy in His wake. I'm going to say it one more time. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, so He tarried two days. And they went through this grievous trial. But friends, here comes the glory of God. And here comes the inexpressible joy of God. And here comes uh, faith to build up His disciples. Oh, and here comes the conversion of many Jews. Look at verse, let me just jump down there real quick in verse 45. Many therefore who saw this sign, what? They believed. And what did I say to you last week? In the midst of your trial, God wants to get in the middle of it and He wants to do a thing in you And you need to be praising Him and exalting Him and magnifying Him. You don't have to understand what He's doing. But those around you need to see you worshiping Him in the midst of your trial. They need to know this is not just dead religion, right? They need to know this is not just dead religion. This is the living God. And He does show up. And He does love me. And and my joy is in His hand. And He's on His way with it. What did I say to you the last two weeks? Expect it. Expect it expect it. Expect Jesus Christ to show up and expect Him to have His joy in your hands. So when the trial comes, commit your way to Him and trust Him. Verse 39, Jesus says, remove the stone. Did you notice Martha kind of has a knee-jerk reaction here? She says, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. And we talked about the four days. They don't embalm. The first century Jews did not embalm. The, the body would be undergoing serious decomposition. And there would be a stench. This is just another sign for any of the naysayers that this is not a resuscitation. This is what? This is a resurrection. And I like the way the Keith worded it. This is really, this is the creative power of the Word of God. I heard one preacher say, if, if Jesus hadn't said, Lazarus come out, every tomb in the world would have been emptied. There was enough power in His Word to bring every dead man, woman, boy, and girl out of the tomb. This is our God. And he says, Lazarus. He's going to say, Lazarus, come forth. But first I want to talk about Mary. You see what she says? He says, oh, God must not understand the gravity of the situation. That's just like you, isn't it, Keith? That's just like me. Maybe some of you are more spiritual than Keith and I. But it's like, oh, God must not understand how serious this is for me. Let me explain it to Him. Let me bring God up to speed on this and get Him on the right page. Lord Jesus, there will be a stench. He's been dead four days. Of course, Jesus Christ knows this. Of course, He does. And here's the thing that Martha doesn't know, and you don't know, and I don't know. Martha doesn't know how awesome he is yet. Right? Martha has no clue how awesome Jesus Christ is. And you know what? I know that that most of us in this room are in relationship with him. We love him. We worship him. But I want to say to you, we don't have a clue how awesome Jesus Christ is. And she doesn't. But she's about to find out she's about to find out but Jesus says something first that's quite informative in verse 40 Jesus said to her did I not say to you you uh, if you believe what if you believe what will happen you will see the glory of God now the world says uh, the world says seeing is believing but in God's economy believing is seeing how many of you have learned that you don't have to raise your hands but how many of you have learned that 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 simple biblical truth that believing is saying, Jesus says, Did I not say to you, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Jesus Christ says, Martha, get your eyes off the corpse, get your eyes off the tomb, and look at me. And I want to say this to you because I, I'm guilty, and I bet some of you are too. When the trial comes, I'm fixated on the trial, and I'm locked on the trial. Jesus is saying, Stop looking at the tomb. You look at me. Look at me and trust me commit your way unto me and trust me Jesus said did I not say if you believed you would see the glory of God verse 41 and 42 Jesus just prays he says father I thank thee and Jesus is not asking for permission or authority or power he possesses all that he's the second member of the Trinity he's God incarnate but he says because of those who are standing around I'm praying this way He's just simply doing what He's always done through the Gospel of John. He's saying clearly that the Father and I are one. There is no division or distinction between the Father and I. We are one. And we act in perfect concert. This is what the Lord Jesus is communicating. Look at verse 43 and 44. And I'm going to ask you to do something I don't think I've ever asked you to do. Um, But I'm going to ask you to to go there okay first century judea there's probably 100 or 200 people standing around this was a prominent family and uh you're out at the tomb okay you close your eyes if you if you feel the need to i want you i want you to go there i want you to visualize this you're at the funeral and as we talked about last week a jewish first century jewish funeral would last for seven days this one's about to get cut short <laughs> This one's about to be cut short, but you're at the funeral and you've been around and you know how real it is and you probably saw him be put in the tomb and you've been comforting Martha and Mary and the rest of the family. You've been doing that. And then this guy from Nazareth shows up and he says, take the stone away. Now I want you to feel how appalled and how horrified you would be. Would you not be? appalled and then to your disbelief they're actually moving the stone there are some men and 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 they're taking the stone away from the cave you can't believe it you're in shock you've never seen anything like this a dead man's tomb opened and they're rolling the stone away and if you bend down just a little bit, you can see his legs in there. You can see Lazarus' legs wrapped in the grave cloth. And you can see him in there. And if you're close enough, you can smell him. You can smell death. And it's coming out of the grave. And you can smell it. And then there's this man from Nazareth. And he says, Lazarus, come out! And... and And when I preach it, I get goosebumps. I don't know about you. I don't know if I did a good job of trying to take you there. But I get goosebumps. He says, Lazarus, come out! And you could hear a pin drop except you can't hear a pin drop because your heart is in your throat and it's in your ears. And you can't believe what you're seeing. And then you see his legs start to move. (laughs) His legs start to move. You can't believe it. Do you feel the awe of this? Maybe the terror of this. Do you feel like you're in the presence of God? Because you are. And I love what Keith said. The voice that spoke a billion galaxies into existence is the voice that spoke Lazarus, uh, Lazarus back into existence. This man was dead, his body was decomposing. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And he does. He does. Jesus Christ has made it clear to every unbiased observer and hearer, "I am God Almighty." That's who He is. He's is not a pretender, as there are there are literally hundreds and thousands of pretenders in the world. Jesus Christ is the real thing, and here's what I want you to see. He was right, wasn't it? It was about His glory. What else was it about? Martha and Mary's joy. Can you imagine them running to their brother and hugging him and laughing uncontrollably with Lazarus, who was most recently dead? Can you imagine the joy? Friends, this is the joy of genuine Christianity. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. You've got to love this. You've got to love this. God's pursuit of His glory was the pursuit of His people's joy in the midst of their trial. And as I pointed out to you earlier, verse 45, many believed. So what I want to say to you is, next time the trial comes, let God be glorified in your life. Let Him be glorified in your life. Expect the joy to come and then expect for many to believe around you. As you project a faith, a real faith. You've heard me say it a hundred times, I'm not talking about dead religion. I'm talking about biblical Christianity with the living God. The resurrection and the life. Jesus says, come forth. And I'm I'm not going to preach the last... Several verses, I'm just going to make a point in passing. If you read those next uh, 45 to 57, you can read them at your leisure. The, the rid- religious leaders, they never deny this miracle. They never even question the fact that this happened. There were hundreds of witnesses, okay? And so they never even question the fact that this happened. But what do they, what do, they do? Does anybody remember? They said, oh yeah, let's kill God. Let's kill God. And I want to say to you, we talked about this in men's Bible study several months ago. We talked about the, the uh, irrational, illogical, and unreasonable rejection of Jesus Christ. And what I want to say to you is to reject Jesus Christ is not an intellectual issue. It is a moral issue. It is always a moral issue. It's not that men don't understand. The Bible tells us it's that men do understand. They just simply won't bow a knee to Jesus Christ. And that's what you see here in these religious leaders as you, as you look at that and, and read that text. Unbelief is not an intellectual issue. Unbelief is always a moral issue. Go read Romans 1, 2, and 3. Chapters 1, 2, and 3. So, I hope I convinced you in John chapter 11 it's not about you, it is about Him. And I hope I convinced you that when the trial comes, you will expect to see the glory of God in it somehow, some way. And that you will walk through this trial in such a way that those around you will see that Jesus Christ is the living God. He is real. This is not dead religion. Okay? And by seeing that in your life, God will convert men and women around you as they see you love Him and adore Him and worship Him and praise Him in the midst on the day... And I'm going to give you a, a, a personal testimony and I'm done. I remember clearly the day I couldn't cry anymore. I remember that day. I remember that night. And I turned to Romans 8.28 <laughs> as any self-respecting Christian would do. And God says, I am working this And you know what? I can stand here 12 years, 14 years later and I can say, He did. And it's just a personal testimony. Expect Him to show up. Expect Him to bring joy in His right hand. Expect Him. Friends, we need to start living John 11. We need to start thinking like real Christians in such a way that that God is converting men and women around us because they see that it's real. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us all. I know that we're all in this room. I know that, uh, oh Lord, we've uh, probably called You to account. We've probably wrung our hands in the midst of a trial we've not trusted you we've not committed our way to you and trusted you Oh Lord thank you for your grace and your mercy compassionate and forgiving God but oh father give us the faith to walk like real sons and real daughters of God father that we would not call you to account that we would not expect an explanation. We would not even expect to be able to make sense of what's going on in our trial. But we will expect You to come. Because You love us. You've told us a thousand times in the Scriptures that You love us. And no one can have us. And nothing can come into our lives apart from Your sovereign good purposes. Lord, help us to become Christians who stand on that rock and who expect You to show up And Father, help us to to live in such a way that those around us see that you are real. We're not just Christians who subscribe to dead dogma, but we hold fast to the living, resurrected Christ. And He loves His people. And even though you seem to tarry at times, we know you love us. Oh God, help us to learn to live like that every single day. Knowing, never doubting, knowing that You love us and that You're on Your way, that Your glory is on its way and that our joy is on its way. Lord, we thank You for this text. We thank You, O oh God. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Ancient